Welcome to episode 30 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be discussing a choice of Simon's. <laughs> um, I'll say that now. Which is painters <laughs> versus musicians in books. Yes, that was Simon's choice. <laughs> I've got my reasons. By... <laughs> but he has his reasons, which we'll soon find out. Um, and we will be comparing two books by Muriel Spark. Uh, the first, The Prime of Miss Jean Brady, and the second, um, A Far Cry from Kensington, which, again, was Simon's choice, but this one is, is a good choice, so I'm not going to decide. Not saying that the other one's a bad choice. That's exactly but we'll, what you're uh, saying. <laughs> by uh, inference, but yeah. But we'll see how it turns out. But anyway, Simon, how are you? Well, I was fine. Now I feel rather thrown <laughs> under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, I'm good. I'm, have, I'm having a mix of emotions today because it's, it's um, as we were recording, it is the new issue of Shiny Books that's come out, and my final one as reprints editor. Um, I've decided to step down from the editorial team, um, though we'll remain an editor at large, whatever that means, but it's, it sounds quite exciting. Um, yeah, so I basically decided I was spreading myself too thin across the internet. <laughs> and I will be very clear that nobody want, nobody particularly wants to see me in real life, but I, but I want to concentrate more on those bits on the internet, like concentrate more on my blog than I have done, etc. Um, but yes, Annabelle and Harriet will be continuing shiny books in some form or other, and um, Victoria and I have stepped down. Well, you know, it's difficult to find enough time to do all the things that you want to do, isn't it? It is, and it's only three years, which is astonishing. No, was it really? No, and you were you were in the one that one of the first or second issues, weren't you? I uh, was, yes. Yeah. So yes, I know time flies, as we were talking about just before we started the podcast. Right, we really were. Oh, which only seems a moment ago, but it was in fact only a moment ago that we were discussing that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, I'm I'm good. Uh, how are you? I'm I'm all right. Yeah, looking forward to Christmas. Happy yes. This will be our final episode before Christmas, or probably before the new year, in fact. Our final episode of 2016. Oh, yes. Because we'll both be going, well, I'll be going home. I assume you're, are you going going to, to family? I am indeed. Hanging out in Kent, um, and then coming back to London and trying to squish in all the Christmas stuff I haven't done. Um, every weekend has just been busy, which is, I meant, yeah, I've got a list as long as my arm of Christmassy things I want to do in London. Like, I want to go to Dickens' house and... Um, all those things, but I just haven't had a free Saturday. Oh, um, I don't so think I'm going to have a free Saturday. Well, no, it's not that I had to work last weekend. Oh, really? um, I know, tragic. And uh, this weekend is my church is doing a big Christmas market thing, so I'm helping out of that. And so it's, you know, the, the time just goes away from you. But so does Dickens' house put on a fancy event, or is it just? Well, event? no, it's one of those things where they drape bit of holly everywhere <laughs> orange potpourri and it's victorian christmas so um but still nonetheless i think it would be festive so um it, it, the shame is it's literally around the corner from where i work but it closes mm. at five so it's not really possible to dash in after work and they're not doing a late night thing but i'll um i'll see what i can do or maybe next saturday not necessarily but following Rachel, he says, uh, pretending they haven't rehearsed his part, <laughs> do you have any great suggestions for Christmas reading? Well, yes, I do, Simon. Um, there are a couple of books that I have, well, actually one I've purchased and one I'm still thinking about purchasing because I'm not sure I can get away with buying two, um, <laughs> is 
are two beautiful editions of Christmas stories that Vintage Classics have published with lovely covers by Emily Sutton, who's one of my favourite modern artists. Mm. Um, and the first one that I've bought is called Round the Christmas Fire, and it's festive stories, and it's got stories in it by uh, Nancy Mitford, P.G. Wodehouse, Stella Gibbons, Charles Dickens, um, Truman Capote, loads of people, lovely little compendium. The cover's beautiful. Um, and it's really nice just to dip into of an evening just to get yourself in the Christmas mood to read a quick story. Um, and there's, they've also done a very similar edition, again, illustrated by Emily Sutton of Dickens at Christmas, which is mm. a Christmas carol, a, crick, the cricket, a cricket at the hearth, the cricket on the hearth, um, and also short pieces from Household Words that Dickens published about Christmas, which is lovely, but I've... I haven't quite been able to justify buying that as well because it's one of those books that's beautiful, but I think realistically, will I read A Christmas Carol on Christmas Eve? I used to as a child, but that's because I had children's version of Christmas Carol. <laughs> uh, this one's slightly longer. But if you are looking for some nice Christmas stories or perhaps a gift for somebody, those are beautiful. They're hardback with lovely illustrated dust jackets and they're, like I said, by vintage classics. I've bought mine in foils, um, but I think you can get them online. Should say we're not sponsored by vintage or foils, but no, we'd not. be more than happy to be if they want to yes, get in touch. <laughs> please do. Um, and I think Christmas reading actually. Oh, and I'm also reading at the moment um, the Santa Claus Murder by Mavis Doyle Hay, which is another one of those British mm. classics, um, British Library crime classics that I love, and that's really good as well. They have some really nice. Um, Christmas mystery stories. So if you're into that, that's a good place to go. Mystery in White is their most famous one that I read last Christmas, which was very good. Uh, but I think I'm enjoying this one fractionally more. Hmm. And I think it was last year that we did a sort of do you do festive reading or not at Christmas? Yes, we did. Yeah. And I very much do. I get myself in the mood by reading. It's nice to, because at the moment it doesn't feel massive. You know, when you're still at work and you're still on the tube every morning and things, you don't really feel massively Christmassy. Um, so it's nice to have something to read to remind yourself it is actually Christmas. Mm. Well, the thing I'm just about to start reading, so um, what I most recently finished reading was A Fire Cry from Kensington about half an hour ago when I realised I hadn't actually finished reading it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just about to start um, Curiosity by Alberto Manguel, which isn't Christmassy, but was given to me before Christmas by my parents last year, and I thought I should start this before this Christmas. <laughs> before, uh, before you get the next pile of new Exactly, books. yes. <laughs> Um, and I don't really know, I can't really remember what it's about other than curiosity. I think it might just be a history of curiosity, which yeah. sounds, sounds very interesting. Um, um, I've read a couple books by him, I think called A Reader on Reading and The Library at Night, both about oh, I've heard reading. Of yeah, he, he writes, I mean, he writes lots of books about reading and about collecting books and about libraries and all these sorts of things, which are wonderful. Um, so this is a bit different for me. I think I read a novel by him, actually. I think I read a novel that I read called Stevenson Under the Palm Trees or something like that, about um, Robert Louis Stevenson on a desert island, maybe. Anyway. Well. He's a very inventive, very inventive man, or perhaps was a very inventive man. I don't know whether or not he's still alive. Although this book only came out last year, so I assume he's probably still with us. Hi, Alberto, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> he may or may not be dead. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever side of the ether you were listening from, <laughs> um, you're very welcome. <laughs> yes, all all listeners alive or dead. <laughs> we welcome them all. <laughs> oh dear. It's getting very Christmas carol there, actually, isn't it? Yes, always <laughs> a bit, indeed. So have you started your Christmas story book? Are you reading something else? 
I'm reading. I'm reading the detective story at the moment, and oh, I've got the the stories by my bed, and I'm reading, trying to read one a night, but some are longer than others, so sort of bits and bobs. And I just did for my first bit of Christmas shopping tonight. I braved Oxford Street and Regent Street after work, um, which felt like a good idea before I went, and then as soon as I was immersed in the crowd, I realised how stupid I had been. But um, <laughs> I survived, I made it home, and I managed to pick up a few things. I had a hilarious conversation with my 10-year-old nephew on the phone when I asked him what he want- wanted for Christmas, and he did a massive sigh down the phone and said, please just don't buy books. Oh, no. So, <laughs> I know. He's like, every year you get me a book. I don't want your books. I was like, well, darling, but you know, I tried to pick something nice, but no. So he wants a Nerf gun instead. Oh. And I don't really know what that is. And then he couldn't believe that I didn't know. And then I was I just like, I don't know what it is either. No, it's just, apparently it's a gun that shoots like Nerfs? plastic. No, it's like um, polystyrene bullets or something. Oh, that does ring a big bell. Yeah. yeah, I got another sigh there that I didn't know what it was. <laughs> You're such a letdown as an aunt. I know, I really am. She's just getting books in the shape of a nerf gun now. But my other nephew, Freddie, wants a book. So oh, good. Well done, Freddie. I know, Freddie's on the on the bandwagon. Albert doesn't, he just wants chocolate. Well, that's also good. Yeah, yeah. so you know, he's fine, those two are fine. George, I need to get round to reading more. Any suggestions for 10-year-old boys? Much appreciated. When I was a 10-year-old boy, I was very into goosebumps, so... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. He doesn't like being scared. That's a problem. Uh, yeah. Any readers who have good recommendations, please do send them away. <laughs> oh, I'm getting a bit of frantic auntie trying to think of presents that aren't made of plastic, which is hard. <laughs> well, Jenny and Jenny at Reading the End were doing a, um, a gift requesting where you could give all the details of the person you were buying for and they'd suggest books. But I don't know if that's, oh. I don't know if that's finished or not yet. Hi, V2 readingtheend.com. Um, I'm sure Jenny will do me a favour. She, she might even do it to you off the off the list, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Do it for you, rather. Um, shall we segue seamlessly into the first topic, which, as yes. you so rightly said, was chosen by me. And I said in the introduction, or interrupted your introduction by saying that I had my reasons. Um, I don't really have any reasons, and I can't <laughs> remember why I chose this. <laughs> but what it's we're going to do... It's because we were reading Far Cry from Kensington. I think that's why you thought of it. Well, perhaps, but there aren't any painters or musicians in it, are there? Well, I thought we said sort of artisty people. Could we could we expand to include writers, and then that way we might. Oh, I think that's cheating, Rachel. Yeah, okay. All right, sorry. We, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see how it goes. We may have to we have to say that later if, if need be. But what I suggested um, we do for um, was painters versus musicians in books, because I think the reason I thought thought of this originally is because authors quite often write about writers in their fiction mm. and I often find if they want to write about the creative process but don't want them to write about a writer they'll they'll either write about a painter or a musician it seems to be the the way that they write about creativity without being too um self-referential I guess okay um this may or may not be a trend you've noticed but I, no- I guarantee you've read at least two of the books I, I wrote I noted down okay. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't write down many but the one that I always think of is um to the lighthouse with Lily, the painter, in that. Oh yes, of course, yeah. And I find what what Wolf writes there about the um, her creative process, which obviously is quite different from from the writers, but the way she describes the angst and and trying to get it right, and it's almost right but not quite, and then that final image of the line on the painting that changes the whole the whole to make it what she wanted. Yeah. Um, all of that, I think, oh, she's, can be 
usefully used as a way to understand how Wolf maybe thought about writing, I think. As an example, yes. Um, do you <laughs> have any examples <laughs> that you thought of with either musicians or writers, either as central characters or as just introduced characters? Um, well, that, <laughs> I'm drawing a complete blank. Um, the only example I can think of um, is from The Fountain Overflows by Rebecca West, where the father is a musician and he's very flaky and disappears. Um, and that's put down to his artistic temperament. Um, and I'm sure there are lots of, of artistic people who paint and play music in books that I've read but I can't think of any I think um what's quite no I can't think of examples of where music is used as um a kind of method of self-expression through a writerly lens but I mean I suppose music is referenced a lot in Victorian and Regency novels as and I always really like it in um Emma where you know the way that Jane Fairfax can play the piano she's Mm. Because she's so good at it, it's seen as like, a, oh, just another thing that she's really annoying. Um, you know, she's too <laughs> talented. And people who play the piano a lot in Jane Austen's fiction, like, for example, Mary in um, Pride and Prejudice as well, it's seen as uh, showing off or um, as being something quite negative, actually. And I wonder if that's because maybe Jane... But I'm sure Jane Austen played the piano well. I'm sure I saw that when I went to her house. Very accomplished woman, yes. <laughs> she was a very accomplished woman. So I wonder what her... Um, her agenda was there because it seems that somebody who plays too well or plays too much is is something to be derided somehow. Side note on Jane Fairfax, which always amuses me. There was an adaptation, I can't which one it was, where um, they, they the Emma turns to see uh, Jane suddenly appears suddenly she realizes Jane is in the room with her piano and my friend Mel wrote a, a story based off a sort of in joke we had that she could Jane Fairfax could teleport, but had to do, had to arrive with a piano wherever she went. <laughs> and this story about how inconvenient this was, and how she'd actually never learnt the piano because she just never got round to it, but she just <laughs> littered the place with them. <laughs> so there's that. I don't think we can use that to read too much. <laughs> um, um, there is a novel that I know you very much love that has painters in it. I'm going to see if if I can give you clues, you can get it. Oh. <laughs> um, I think it's set in Dominica. Maybe. Right. It may not be. No, Dalmatian, Dalmatian Coast, that's right. Dalmatian Coast. <gasps> Illyrian Spring! There you go. Oh, of course! <laughs> How did I not think of that? Yes, and that's a wonderful way of using art as a form of finding yourself and your form of self-expression. And I think that's an interesting... No, I wrote it down because it made me realise where my sort of line was on whether or not I appreciated an artist in a novel, or indeed a musician, I think, um, in that they are both, and I can't remember their names, but the, the, can you remember their names? Uh, yes, Grace and Nicholas. Thank you very much. Um, are both very talented, but very, um, I find them very snobby and very like, they, they talk about how there's no point in painting if you're not going to be brilliant at it, and they mocking all the people doing their amateur pieces. And that's what turns, I think that's what turns me off in these, um, in those guys of artists and musicians because I always, always think these things can be enjoyed recreationally even if you're not very good. Um, yeah. And I think I enjoy, <laughs> I think I enjoy creative types in novels if they, if they've got low self-esteem or, you know, <laughs> insecure in the way that Lily is into the lighthouse and, um, yeah. 
that sort of thing where, where it's more about they're, they're trying their best and they're enjoying it, or they're doubtful about it, but it's the ones where they're just perfection or nothing or very cocky about what their art that I find off-putting, which I seem to find more off-putting with musicians than I do with artists, which, I mean, I'm not particularly brilliant either, but I'm probably better musician than I am an art- than an artist, I don't know, but... um I think you're perfectly good at both, Simon. Your drawings are wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Victoria. I, I certainly enjoy both, um, and I'm not untalented at both. I'm not, compl- I'm not a complete amateur at both. But, um, but I get sort of riled up more with a musician in a novel who scorns those who aren't musical um, than I do with an artist, perhaps. But I don't know why that is. Hmm. Mm, there's some deep-seated trauma there, Simon. There probably is. It's not even mm. that deep-seated. I hated playing the piano for years. But... <laughs> But now you're, you're experiencing a resurgence of interest. Exactly. But I think there is, um, I think you, there's something there in what you said about enjoying that sense of, of self-doubt and self-esteem because I think that speaks to all of us. I think lots of us have this real desire to be creative and, and to create and actually that process is much more difficult than you might think. Mm. And underseeing that frustration expressed through other people, it's a sense of solidarity and this feeling that, well, you know, I'm just like everybody else and that I've got this this talent and, and actually it is really difficult to express yourself and it is really difficult to make a success of yourself at these things and it's a hard slog really and seeing people um, enjoying their talent and just doing it in a in a way that's just for them rather than attempting to become some mm-hmm. you know royal academic academician or um a concert pianist or whatever is is quite nice to read about. I think the people who take themselves very seriously um, as artists in novels um, are often painted as figures of fun, really, That's either true, as figures yeah. of fun or people who have but serious mental problems, like are highly strung, depressed, over emotional. Um, those seem to be the kind of the two parallel depictions, really. Maybe that's the anomaly in Illyrian Spring, where they're not. So they are perfectionists, but they're not shown as figure the fun or anything the author seems to want us to agree with them yeah and what's interesting is that grace is is very successful at what she does um but she is not considered in that she's not considered as successful by her husband Mm. um he very much dismisses her work even though she's actually made a lot of money from it and she's got a lot of respect in in the art world and nicholas is 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 trying to show that he's got a talent to his parents who are very anti him pursuing art because it's not a real career. It doesn't really, you know, they want him to be a lawyer or something um, like that. And so for him, it's about making, proving himself. And for Grace, she doesn't, she also needs to prove herself to her husband that, you know, she has this talent and she's got something worth showing, I suppose. And for both of them, their creativity is intrinsically linked with, with how they feel about themselves and how they feel other people perceive them. Um, and I suppose that's true of, of most artists in novels, really. It's about, you know, their identity is very much tied up in their creative pursuits. And the interesting thing about musicians, um, as opposed to artists, is that the, the, um, they're just as likely to be very good musicians as they are to be composers in novels, whereas an artist is unlikely to be copying lots of other painters, if you see what mm. I mean. So, um, and obviously there's, there's the argument that every time you, every, every musician is sort of recreating the, the, the music for the first time themselves or in, uh, their interpretation or whatever. But, um, 
but there's still quite a sizable difference between someone who's composing something and someone who's playing something that someone else has composed, I guess. Yes. Um, and we see both those sides. So we get... I can't think of any any novels I've read about composers, although I read quite a few, I think, where they've got pianists. And that can be either... I mean, like the, the, one of the daughters in Guard Your Daughters is, is a keen pianist and wants to get good at that. And But it can also be... They can have that touchstone of the familiarity of the piece with... Um, with the readers that makes it more poignant or amusing, or whatever. The example, um, seeing a bit of Map Lucia, where Lucia plays Moonlight Sonata, um, but only the first movement. And that's the sort of thing where he doesn't need to explain at length what, what she's doing in the way he would have to do if it, if it was a painting. They have to describe what's happened, what, what their style was like, what they're doing. Everyone, well, not everyone, you know, most people know Moonlight Sonata and can look it up and note and discover that the first movement's quite slow and um, relatively easy compared to the second and third movements. Second and oh, third, yes. maybe the second. No, so, there are three movements yeah. and they get progressively stressful. So, yeah, she talks about it. She, <laughs> she prefers the first because it's more contemplative and, and, and obviously the subtext there is she prefers the first because she can't play the second and yeah. third. Um, I think there's a sense as well in, in some novels like that. There is that in-joke of, you know, lots of us have, have tried our hand at music or art and found ourselves to be less than talented. And there is that sense that, you know, actually we're all like this. We all want to try. We all want to be creative. And we all end up being, you know, some a lot of us end up not reaching anywhere near the heights that we would like. And I find that quite nice as well, that sense that creativity mm, is, mm. is something that we all have inside of us and obviously some of us will reach higher echelons of it than others. But um, there's that amusement of people dabbling, I think, which is quite nice. Yes, and I think it can be sort of reflected in the reader, as you say. Um, again, in Mavity, actually, you're painting. The, 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 all those painters who crowd around to paint the church spire and he says yeah. something... Or, um, or the tower, but he says something about how everyone makes it slightly more crooked than it is, just to make it clear that they knew it was crooked. <laughs> it wasn't just a, a poor painting, <laughs> um, which I enjoyed. Um, um, th- have you ever sort of been reading a book which mentions a painting or music that's made you want to go and explore that more? Well, the Goldfinch actually mm. um, made me buy Donna Tart. If anyone hasn't read it. Um, really got me interested in the goldfinch as a painting and this idea of of being obsessed with a particular picture. Um, and I actually had the chance to see it mm. um, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Edinburgh because they had it randomly that day that I arrived. They had it received it from Amsterdam and it was oh, on show. Wow. And I just was waiting in there for my friend, and I thought, oh, well, it's the goldfinch. So how lucky am I? Oh, did you not know it was going to be there? No, I didn't know at oh, all. wonderful. So it's a lovely surprise, and it's actually very tiny in the flesh. Um, but it was really, really interesting getting the opportunity to see it, because in my head it looked very different. I mean, I knew what it looked like, but I because I'd seen the image, it's on the front of the book, but I didn't know the size of it or what the frame looked like or the context of the story behind it or anything like that. So... That was really interesting, being able to to look at that in more detail. Um, and I'm sure I've had another... Um, and I have to say, you know, my desire to play the piano came very much from reading about people playing piano in novels and mm. being able to sit and play pieces to entertain people. Like read, reading about it in Victorian novels and things, everyone can just sit down and whack out yes. a song. 
And I thought, well, I want to know, why aren't we like that now? I want to be like that. So, you know. <laughs> I'm seeing now your friends popping around for, yes, you know, just... a quick dinner and you're just whipping out the keyboard. <laughs> be like, guys, why is you here? <laughs> I'll just say a little piece. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, I'm not that good yet, but I've only, I've, you know, it's been two years now and I'm still loving it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we had a couple, last year we had, um, it was the first year we had the piano in the house here. We got happy friends around for carols and we're singing carols as I was playing them on the piano. That was, um, um, there's a couple of books where I've gone away and, and, and thank goodness for the internet now because it's so much, so much easier to find out what a, what a piece of art looks like or what a piece of music sounds like. Um, one is um, a notebook I know you've read, So Long, See You Tomorrow, by William Maxwell. Yeah. And I can't now remember the significance of it in the novel, but there's a sculpture he mentions quite often, or returns to. Oh, I forget. I can't remember. Um, it's a very interesting sculpture, which I don't remember the name of, but, um, <laughs> that I looked up, and I actually, when I wrote a review about my blog, I put a picture of the sculpture with it. And, um, and that was one of the things which just added a dimension to the novel, um, and... The people reading it originally, obviously, before the internet, wouldn't, unless they happened to know it, would have just had to go off what he was saying, but it was quite nice to go, go and look it up. Yeah. Um, and when I read House of Silence by Linda Gillard, she, in that, or one of the characters, um, really likes a piece by Rachmaninoff that I, um, I wrote it down, actually. Rachmaninoff, Sinatra in G minor, Opus 17, 3, and Dante. I don't know if I've put the pauses in the right place. Oh, <laughs> Opus 17, it's rather than 7. Anyway, yes, um, and which I looked up to sort of listen to while I was reading it. Um, and it's a really lovely piece. And, um, I think things like that where, where an author has those thoughts whilst they're, whilst they're writing and it's specific rather than saying, you know, or they love listening to Beethoven or they loved looking at Picasso or whatever. When they've actually picked particular things, it is just adds an extra dimension to the, to the reading experience. Yes, it does. And actually, the um, books I've been reading, the series, the Elizabeth Jane Howard Cazalet Chronicles that I've been reading, I'm saving, I haven't read the last one yet because I'm mm. saving it up. And my um, sister is on at me to finish because it's her turn to read it next. Um, but it's the characters, the two, um, there's a character in it called the Duchy, who's the oldest, the, like the matriarch of the family, and she is, um, she's good enough, it says in the book, she's good enough to be a concert pianist, but she's never been a concert pianist because, you know, her job is at home. And um, she is obsessed with these particular pieces of Bach music, mm. and that's mentioned quite a lot. And they're played when there's a sort of stressful, when she feels stressed or when she wants to um, just be by herself, she goes off and plays all these things on the piano. And that was quite nice, getting that knowledge and then being able to listen to them and imagine what it would have yeah, been like they... in the dining room. And yeah. Have you read any novels about real artists or musicians, do you think? Well, fictionalised versions of... Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I've only done it with writers, I think. Hmm. I did, you read, did you read Girl of the Pearl Earring back in the day when everyone was reading that? I didn't, because everyone was reading it. So <laughs> obviously, I couldn't. I can't think of any... Um, I must have read something... Um, but I can't think. I feel like I have read something about a composer, but there's a very nice illustrated book, actually, that I saw when I was shopping tonight that's um, about the lists. Mm. It's been done for children, which I thought was interesting. I was like, oh, oh nice. Not something that my nephews would appreciate, I'm yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> um, I read a book about a novel, I think it was a novel, sort of half novel, half novel, maybe about, I'm going to say Mary Cassidy, I can't remember if that's the correct name. Oh, I love her. She's, yes. I've seen all her paintings in New York, yeah. Ah, so it's called, I think it's called Mary Cassidy Reading the Evening Paper or something like that. I'll look it up and put it in the notes, but, um, 
that was one that a friend lent me years ago, which I think had the paintings sort of in in between the chapters um, and, and was maybe oh. linked by the different people sitting for the portraits or something like that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's been years since I read it. I have no idea at all who wrote it now, but yes, I will know that. I'll find out and write it down <laughs> somewhere. Um, uh, and there um, is a book, actually, I want to read because um, I know it's about... Um, A.N. Wilson wrote it, and it's about somebody who... Oh, I can't think who the composer is now. Someone German will come to me. Um, but it's called like two. Oh, this is such a vague thing. I'll I'll look it up and tell. Is it the one that's two people's name? Yes. So what is it called? Is it Grace and someone? Someone and Grace. Right. Do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go on Amazon and look it up now. Sorry. Okay. I'll keep talking while you're doing that. Because yeah, <laughs> I did read a, recently um, "Summer in February" by Jonathan Smith. Um, uh, didn't they make that into a film? They did, and the reason I read it was partly because I bought the film, and partly because, um, which I still haven't seen, partly because my friend Carol really loves it, and she kept um, recommending it. Um, despite her recommendation and it being around, I had clearly not cottoned on to the fact that it was about real people until <laughs> I was almost at the end, because I had not heard of them. Um, and it's about the Cornish School of Painters, I think. Um, oh, oh I know who you mean. The Lake. like Lamorna Birch and all those people. Potentially, let's look it up. You, yeah. so you, if you found yours, you say yours, and I'll look at mine. Oh yes, <laughs> mine is uh, Winnie and Wolf. It's about the. Um, oh, that's it. Yes. It's about the son of Wagner. Oh right. Yeah. Was he also a composer? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's. I'm uh, glad we've come to this with all the information of, I've been It's not real. It's a fictionalized. It's something to do with Hitler as well, and you know something else. But uh, it's basically about mus- musical world, and that did sound really interesting. Um, and knowing A. N. Wilson being amazing at everything, he's also probably an accomplished pianist or something, and knows all about <laughs> it. So. So, and my book was about Alfred Munnings, Gilbert Evans, and Florence Carter Wood. Yes, I know what the, that mm. art school is called, but I can't think of the name of it. Um, sadly, there is no Wikipedia page for the book. There is only for the film, so I don't know if it's going to be... The, oh, the Lamorna Group, which is what you said, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, well done. Yes, totally oh, and Harold, Harold and Laura Knight, of course, yes. Yes, um, the Knight, yeah. That's because I think I had heard of Laura Knight, um, but just it was quite a common name. I thought it was just a lovely Laura Knight. <laughs> did not investigate both of those. This is what happens when you don't read the blurb before you read the book. Whatever <laughs> you um, Is there anything that would put you off, do you think, or make you like a book less it being about um, an artist or a painter, sorry, an artist or a musician? Like a way it would be dealt with that would turn you off? I think maybe... I don't like it when people use those lazy stereotypes of the over overstrung... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, artist who is on it, or, or the introverted artists, particularly with musicians who are so wrapped up in their music that they can't possibly communicate with the outside world. Because I think those are lazy stereotypes. I don't think then I've not really seen them in reality. Mm-hmm. I think actually a lot of musicians and artists are very sociable people. They are very interested in the world around them because they want to express it through art. So, um. Yeah, that puts me off when I read a description and it's like, oh, you know, reclusive musician or reclusive painter, blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, oh, please, I don't want to, you know. <laughs> no, I'm not interested. But I actually, you know, I'm, I enjoy both art and, and music very much. So anything that's, in, if that's included in a book, that would, that would interest me rather than put me off. 
Yes, I think I'm broadly the same. I think the only, only um, thing that bring off, as I, sort of what I said earlier in spring, even though I did actually love that book, um, is if it ends up being too, um, I don't know, just off-putting in terms of expecting the reader to know more than they do or to have the highest standards they do. Um, I've, actually, I've just read Evenfield by Rachel Ferguson. I might have been reading it last time we did the podcast, which is a sort of quirky childhood memoir or looking back on childhood. Um, oh, aren't they those new books published by um... Dean Street Press? Yeah, yeah. By, by Scott at Fire and Middlebrow is the sort yeah. of um, editor of the series, I think. Um, but yes, it's she's a, um, a musician in that, or she she at least learns the, the piano and um, has all these bizarre ways of talking about pieces or about um, about particular ways of playing sections of them that I can't remember now but it's all very quirky and weird and, and I really enjoyed that, I thought it was fun um, because, partly because she is this odd character where you, you don't really think you're supposed to empathise with her so much as just enjoy her um, so that's the sort of thing I enjoyed but I think yeah it would put me off um, if there was I don't know, if it expected the reader to know as much as the character about art and music and would look and trying to make it out like the readers should be looked down on if they don't. Perhaps. Yeah. A bit of a smug author. That's exactly it. Yes. Mm. Um, but I think ultimately I w- my preference would be for reading about an artist, partly I think because I find paintings more interesting than music in general. Um, broadly. I mean, I love, Lots of both, obviously, but I think it's the artistic, um, the painting sort of process that I find really fascinating more than I do composing or, or um, learning to play things. Um, and I know I just find, um, yeah, because I, because it is always the person creating themselves rather than creating from something that someone else has composed, I just find that really interesting as well. Yeah. Um, and there's always the chance that the painting can end up on the cover, which helps. Mm. <laughs> so, so um, yes, I think there's a very good reasons. I can't quite express myself very well today, <laughs> but, but I'm going to pick reading about artists. Um, how about you? Um, I probably prefer reading about musicians actually, because it's I think it's a not more skilled, but it's it's a world that's more interesting to me because at least I can play music whereas art I mean it's I have two things I can't do oh, just um, two. <laughs> two, things, two things I can't do and uh, and will never be able to do no matter how hard I try which is art and dancing yeah. oh. <laughs> I can't dance to save my life I've never tried so who knows maybe it's a secret talent <laughs> <laughs> yes tune in next time for our dancers or what we <laughs> what we pit dancing in sitters <laughs> <laughs> uh, well there you go so that wasn't too painful was it we managed to have some things to say <laughs> yeah we always do somehow always it do. just happens um, let us know good books about painters um, I keep saying painters when I mean artists I mean it can be sculptors or sketchers or whatever yeah. <laughs> um, um, or musicians um, and uh, which would you choose let us know yeah um so yeah, second half of this episode also was my suggestion um, to Mural Spark novels. Um, they are A Far Cry, Far Cry from Kensington and The Prime of Misty and Brody. I think it's fair to say The Prime of Misty and Brody is far and away Mural Spark's most famous novel. Yes, very much so. Um, to the extent, in fact, that she's not really known for anything else, as far as I can tell. That, that's... No, but she has, I mean, she does have a very large body of work, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, wrote an awful lot. Um, and not just fiction, in fact, she wrote biographies of Mary Shelley and John Macefield and someone else. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I, I suggested doing a Far Cry from Kensington with it, mostly because it was one that I've wanted to read for a while and haven't read yet. I hadn't read yet. Um, when Harriet Devine and I did Mural Spark Reading Week, we, um, back in 2011, I think it was, a lot of people said that was really good. So I thought, yes, that sounds like it be fun. Um, I have read quite a lot of Mural Spark, and in fact, I have taught, the one time I did any teaching of an undergraduate during, just after my doctorate, um, I taught her uh, Mural Spark for eight weeks, which is great fun. Um, but that was one I'd not read. How, um, before we talk about them more, um, in depth, what's your experience of Mirror Spark to date? Well, I mean, I just read um, The Power of Miss Jean Brady. I felt like I'd read more, but actually, I've got, I was sort of thinking about Barbara Pym. Um, right. <laughs> he does have some similarities with Mirror Spark um, in the sense they both have a rather um, acerbic wit, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, very different cast of, but you know, not massively different cast of characters. I think actually they're quite similar in some ways. Um, that could have been a, something to discuss. We'll park that for future. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I'd only read The Power of Miss Jean Brady, which I've read a couple of times and absolutely love. And I see something different in it every time I read it. And I love how subversive it is as a book. Well, um, shall we do quick intros then uh, yeah. to the books? Do you mind taking that one and then I will do a Far Cry from Kensington? Yeah, of course. So uh, The Power of Miss Jean Brady is about a woman called Miss Jean Brady, who is a primary school teacher in Edinburgh. And it's after, it's in the 50s, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Sure, sure. And, um, it's just... <laughs> oh, no, it can't be, because it uh, must be set before the Spanish Civil War, so... Oh, yes, the... you're right, it's set in the 30s. Yeah. Um, and, because I'm thinking of the war, but it's the First War. And she has lost her fiancé in the First World War, so she says. And so she's one of the surplus women. And she's very glamorous, she's very intelligent, uh, she's very interested in art and politics, and... Um, she has her special group of students who um, she educates in the ways of the world and she ta- takes them out for tea, she has them around to her house and she's very frank with them um, when they ask her questions about life. I mean, these girls are 10, so they're a bit old. They're not like five-year-olds or anything. Um, and she also has lots of interesting relationships with the other teachers at school. And her favourite phrase is, you know, I'm in my prime and when you're in your prime, etc., which she uses to excuse her behaviour. And anyone who is against her is sort of an enemy and has to be shut out. And I, one of my favourite parts is when they're in a, this is the kind of thing I do in the classroom, um, <laughs> is when she's telling them something that, um, that they shouldn't be doing. They're supposed to be learning about something else. And she's like, right, girls, prop up your history books so that if the head teacher comes in, it'll look like they're doing that. <laughs> Um, and so she's very unconventional and it seems like a very idyllic image of a sort of dead poet society teacher who's going off the curriculum and doing their own thing and enriching these children's lives. But as the novel progresses, it becomes slightly more disturbing and the consequences of her behaviour prove to be much more damaging than you might expect. You always do it so beautifully, Rachel. Well oh, thanks. <laughs> um, I will do my best with Far Cry from Kensington, which um, is about... Mrs. Hawkins, she, her, her name is um, Agnes, but she's known to everyone as Mrs. Hawkins. Um, she is the first person narrator of this book, and she is um, she lives in a in a in a boarding house um, and starts off the novel by describing the various people in that boarding house. 
Um, she works as an editor at a publishing house. Um, and so she, she's got these relationships with a, a Polish dressmaker who lives opposite her. She's got um, a young girl in, in the in the attic as well, so medical student there, there's the, the landlady, Millie, all these sorts. But the sort of crux of the novel, I guess, is the relationship she has or rather does not have with Hector Bartlett, who is a, a terrible writer. And I'm going to defer to your French for how she describes him. How should I be pronouncing this? Pisseur de copie. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> which is an epithet she gives him when she sees him in a park. Um, having, I think he's sent her some submissions. Um, so there's a, a pisser of prose to those <laughs> an Anglo-Saxon on it. Um, but... Yes, she refuses to back down from this statement and it basically haunts him and follows her. So she loses various jobs because of it. Um, but she can't bring herself to not acknowledge that he is a terrible writer who very productive, um, but very bad. Um, and like many Spark novels, um, and then like, and like Prime Minister Jimbrady, it's a very quirky outlook on, on the world and a very sort of she, just Quite bizarre, I guess, but also she, she, I think what she's really good at in both these books and in general um, is giving characters quite strident characteristics um, mm-hmm. that there might be three or four just very, very striking things about them or about their personality, and, and they're they're what carry them through the novel. They're these things that are sort of touchstones that keep recurring. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think what, what what Mrs. Hawkins are, but um, <laughs> I mean, I guess just said general. Actually, oh, the, one of the things is that she's very fat at the beginning of the book and decides to only eat half of every meal <laughs> yes. subsequently and then loses all the weight. So <laughs> oh, there's a poison pen letter going around as well, isn't there? Yes. Um, Wanda receives a note from... Wanda, being the Polish dressmaker, receives a note from an organiser who um, knows that she isn't paying income tax. This leads to some catastrophic events. Yes. Um, so we both read Prime Minister Jane Brady before and we both read A Firecry from Kensington for this... Um, episode, what did you think of A Far Cry from Kensington? I absolutely loved it. I wasn't sure what to make of it at the beginning. Um, And I thought that uh, the character of Mrs. Hawkins was very interesting because she very much comes across as a middle-aged woman, but she's actually 28. Mm, Um, mm. And I found that quite strange at first because I couldn't imagine her as... I felt that she should be like in my head. She was this middle-aged woman, and I couldn't get that out of my head. Even though I knew she was twenty-eight, I just couldn't picture her at all. Um, and I still can't actually. I can't decide what I would have her look like. Um, but the the world of the boarding house is brought wonderfully to life. All these characters are so um, individual and so lively. And I love the way that they sit on the the one of the things I enjoyed the most was her and Millie, her landlady, sitting on the stairs watching across the street um there's a window they can see into the house next door the couple next door fighting with each mm, other and mm. they get chocolates to eat while they watch it isn't that brilliant <laughs> i love that bit they, they, yes they're sort of pretending that they might call the police or something but actually just you know it's, it's their pop their, their sort of cinema yeah it's very odd but um and i loved the the depiction of publishing the publishing world in the 1950s and you also get that real sense of um it's the early 50s it's after the war and there's still not a lot of money around there's still a lot of 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 difficulties getting jobs but there's also a real sense of creativity people wanting to start new things Mm. um and i i liked how um also all the characters were sort of very linked with each other very small world of people 
And I wonder if London did feel like a smaller world then. Perhaps it did, particularly if you're living in a boarding house, I guess. Yeah. Um, it is just this community that's stressed together. And like you, I, um, I really enjoyed how most of them, or some of them we don't see that much of eventually, but most of them, just having been mentioned at the beginning, become these really fixed characters. There's a girl upstairs who's, who um, becomes pregnant and no one knows who the father is. There's yeah. uh, the middle of a student who takes a unexpected to me starring role towards the end. Yes, I didn't <laughs> see that coming either. Not at all. Um, um, Wanda is great. She's this very neurotic um, Paris dressmaker who's very um, anxious, but also, um, as recurs a lot through Sparks novels, is, um, she's a devout Catholic, um, and that brings with it both... <laughs> pluses and minuses in the way that she exp- expresses her Catholicism, which yeah. is largely through anxiety again. <laughs> um, and I think it was just held together by this ex- extraordinary character at the centre who, as we're hearing her voice, and she often makes statements about sort of general life maxims or something, and you think, obviously I don't believe this, I don't think Miros Park believes this, but it's given with a sort of strength of character that I do. I don't know, it just... It doesn't feel like a madman saying it. It feels like you're reading good advice and then a moment later you're like, oh, no, wait, that's completely bizarre. Yeah. Um, I think she does create these worlds that are bizarre and yet somehow believable. Better, yeah. Better than always anyone else I've read, I think. No, it is a very bizarre world and it feels like it shouldn't. none of the stuff should be true, but at the same time you completely believe it. And because they're so alive and they're so interesting and there's enough that is real about them to make it... Uh, something that you can trust I suppose and it's just you know her voice is so wonderfully real and she's so authoritative about everything and this character of Hector Bartlett is fantastic isn't he brilliant this sort of this this monster who is completely believable and not really that monstrous I guess no because she's built him up to this monster so basically all he does is keeps trying to get his stuff published everywhere um, and he's using his girlfriend slash something Emma Loy who was a renowned yes. writer um, sort of trying to use her, her connections through her um, yeah he is just this great creation that she te- that Mrs Hawkins takes against him hugely and sort of the dominant relationship in her life I guess yeah um, and she's obsessed with her hatred of him which is really mm-hmm. interesting and he becomes obsessed with her uh, which proves problematic to you other members of the house. Um, yes. And he's just this real, I think, actually quite malevolent figure. He, and he's everywhere. You know, she can't go anywhere without That's seeing true. him. That's true. He turns up all the time at every publishing house, every street, it seems. He's just, you know, she she goes to the pub for lunch. He's there. And he's the way he's described with his sort of double chin and these soft lips, and I just imagine oh, the him being this, yeah. oh, this disgusting hanger-on figure. And you really do, I felt very viscerally, like, disgusted whenever he came on the page. I was like, ugh, you're so disgusting, go away. Um, and she's very good at creating that character, that person who's wheedling their way into everywhere. He's got no talent but knows just how to to butter people up and to talk his way into any door. And I think we've all probably come across people like that. Um, and I think he's very, very well done. There's a great um, moment where where the, she describes his writing style, because I wish I'd just read out. He says he takes incalculable pains with his prose style and, she, and, the, and then she doesn't say this in the narrative. says, he did indeed, the pain showed... His writings writhed and ached with twists and turns and 
Tergiversations, don't know that word. Inept words, fanciful repetitions, far-fetched verbosity, and long Latin-based words. And I think that just paints... Because we never see any excerpt of his writing, but I think no. that paints perfectly that sort of prose that we're all familiar with that is wildly overwritten and extremely bad. <laughs> yes. Um, which is so the opposite of Sparks. She never overwrites. She's a very sparse writer in many ways, um, but gets everything across. With I think it's, that's partly what makes her characters so authoritative and dom- and um, striking is the sparse prose that she uses. Yeah, she's very matter-of-fact. She's not overly flowery or anything like that, but at the same time, it is very well written. It's very tightly mm, written. Very tightly, yes. And you just can't help yourself just being completely drawn into the world. I was addicted to it. I couldn't stop reading. Um, and I don't often get like that with books lately, actually. Um, but I've, I don't really read at home very much. But this one, I was like, right, that's it. Um, as soon as I got in from work, I've just got to sit down and read another bit. And I just, I could see all of the world. And I was really disappointed when I got to the end. Oh, like, you're, oh, yeah. you're in luck with so many more to read. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, th- I think it's her sort of mix of disparate ingredients that is um, so interesting. Like in this one, we've got the whole radionics story. Yes, which is very <laughs> odd. <laughs> very bizarre. So, so like Spark. She always so, so radionics is you can cure or curse someone by putting part of their hair or blood in a black box, and this becomes very important. And it's it's, it's so bizarre, but it but. It I makes think, sense with the characters that she gives us. That's the thing. Absolutely. And I think often in her books, she, because the characters accept the bizarre and the ordinary with more or less the same response, that, and that's how it works. She puts, there's, there's one I really like called, um, The Only Problem, which is mostly about, um, someone who's writing a book about Job. But, um, <laughs> at the same time, Gen becomes embroiled in a terrorism ring. <laughs> and it's, it's like, those things don't go together. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's academic quietly working on the problem of, um, of suffering, who also becomes embroiled in a terror- terrorism ring. But she, somehow she manages to make work. Um, and the same thing in Prime Minister Jean Brady, the, 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 her obsession with Mussolini, where does that come from? Yeah. But it, but it, but it works so well. Yeah. Um, because, Partly because it's not a one-off. If she only said it once, it might have been like, well, that's a weird moment. But because it is repeated often and becomes a part of the fabric of that character, it just you think, oh, sure, she's obsessed with Mussolini. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just who she is. And she's a wonderful... She is a wonderful character in that she's so alive. Again, like I could picture her now in my head, and it's been a few years since I've read the book. And whenever I go to Edinburgh, I always imagine that I'm there with her, like I can see her walking Aww. through the streets. And it is that sort of book that stays with you and it paints such a vivid picture of a person. You know, she is a fully realised person and she's a very conflicting person to read about because on the one hand, it's so much that's admirable about her and so much that's likeable and pitiable at the same time, but then also so much that is quite disturbing. And I think something that she has that perhaps Mrs. Hawkins doesn't is a vulnerability. Mm. Um, and you do maybe feel more empathy for her than you would do for Mrs. Hawkins, or at least I do. Um, where you're told very early on that she's betrayed by one of her girls. One yes. of her girls. Her girls. <laughs> um, one of the Brody set. Um, and as, I mean, Spark does that time and again in her books. Um, what is it? Uh, she has these prolepsies where she tells you what's going to happen. Um, because, Perhaps less so, actually, in a far cry from Kensington than in some, but um, still occasionally in there. You think it's not the plot that's important so much as 
the characters and and how the plot happens. So yeah. you uh, often big moments are given away quite early on. You're not told who betrays her, so there is in, in this there still is the issue of finding out later which one it is. Um, but you're told about the fates of, of certain of the girls later on. You're told about the one who dies in the Spanish Civil War quite a long time before she dies, aren't you? Yes, you are, yeah. Um, and I, I, th- I find that fascinating. It goes against all the sort of rules of writing that I'm sure have been laid down, but I, lo- I love it when early on she'll tell you this character. I think in The Girl's Thunder Means, early on there's one who she says, whatever her name is, who would later die in a fire in the house, and then just keeps going on. And you think, oh, what's happening? Yeah. No, it's a strange, it's, it is a strange construct actually, but it does work and you get uh, the, uh, you kind of get these flashes into the past as well, don't you, and the future mm-hmm. and it jumps around in time so sometimes you're not 100% sure what time period you're in, but she is a very attractive character in many ways and I think there are a lot of elements to her that are you know, you read it and think, oh, yeah, you know, I really can get behind this woman. She knows what she's talking about, and she's so, such a free spirit, and, you know, she's like a woman railing against the machine, and um, then at the same time, you think, well, actually, she's being just as manipulative as the other people around her who she says oh, are manipulating, yeah. and, you know, there is that disturbing element of how much of a hold she has over the minds of these young children and how dependent upon her she has made them. And that girl who's desperate to be in the Brady set, I can't remember her name now, but the one who's desperate to be mm. in and, and can't get in. And it's. There's a cruelty yeah. about her. There is a cruelty. Mm, about definitely. Her. Um, and the way that she sort of, yeah, bends other, the girl's wills to her. But it's, it's a, I think it's a really brilliant mix of her strength and her manipulation along with her vulnerability because mm-hmm. I felt genuinely very sad when, it's, when you find out how, how she has been betrayed and who betrays her. Um, and it's not like a novel, a sort of typical novel where there's a likable character who's betrayed and you think, oh, this is terrible, but, but it's sort of cleverer than that and more sophisticated, and more sophisticated than that. But it's still this, it's sort of like the pulling the rug from under, um, a powerful figure again. It's just, it's just really clever how she makes you feel two different things about Mr. Brady at the same time. Like both for and against. Yeah, her. and it, there is something upsetting as a reader because you see this woman who appears to be invincible, and actually she's not. And I think that speaks to the fear in all of us that you know we're all vulnerable, no matter how strong we might feel or how capable we might feel. There's always going to be something that that can pull us down. And I think certainly from a teacher's perspective, there's something particularly painful about a child as a student. Um, turning around on you and and because you're the one who's supposed to have the power mm-hmm. so having that just uh, being in the th- in the kind of thrall of, of someone younger than you um is quite hard to take i think and also when i suppose you, she feels her perspective is that she's put everything into these children she doesn't see the the more sinister aspects of it she's completely oblivious to that which is also what makes her disturbing but that like you say there is that vulnerability about her once you know about her past and the things that she hasn't had you like she's real in that sense you know there's elements Mm. about her that are very admirable but then you know she also is a dangerous person and i think that's one of the other things about her vulnerability is that the moment where she is betrayed it's not just her 
discovering that someone's betrayed her, but it's that moment where she also realizes that, oh, maybe I wasn't a for- the force for good that I assumed I was yeah. in these girls' lives. Yeah, maybe so, I didn't matter as much as I thought I did, and that's hard. And what I just realized, which I'm sure various listeners have been yelling at us whilst we talk, is that there's a big painting storyline in this novel. Yes, there is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Um, that would just, have been a very good segue, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it have just been? I'll, I'll, I'll pop it in in post-production. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, he's torn between the art master. Well, it's sort of a love triangle with the art master. And what, what does the other man teach? I can't remember. Something uh, else. Music, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> We've got this perfect example of a novel that we're just <laughs> ignoring. Um, I think it is the music. Is it? <laughs> oh, we're, we're such a mess. <laughs> oh, dear. There's a brilliant moment where um, where he's painting all these portraits of, of various people and, and one of the girls realises that all of them are her. Yes, I, that's I, very disturbing, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes. Uh, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very disturbing, and that idea again that she's transformed all of the children into basically versions of her. But then I think at the same time there is that sadness, the thought that she has lost her fiance, she will never get to have her own children, and so she does kind of try and and relive or kind of recreate herself in each of these girls because she has no other way in which to do that. And that is, like you said, you don't feel that vulnerability, that uh, sense of vulnerability in Mrs. Hawkins. We know that nothing bad's going to happen to her, even though, well, you know... She is a widow. She is a widow, but then the man yeah. is like a week long. So you Isn't it bizarre? That sort of, <laughs> it's very bizarre. He's a, did he die in the Spanish Civil War? No, he no. died in World War II. World War II. It's this, it's this very brief... Flashback cameo, which he very matter-of-factly says about how he basically, they got married, he beat her up, and then he died. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was very odd. But she's like, oh, you know, I was very much in love with him. Um, <laughs> it's just by the by. And so it is, you don't feel that sense of, of loss. You know, she says she's a widow, but she, you don't feel sorry for her in that sense. Whereas I think with the prime of Miss Jean Brady, that we are very much encouraged to see her as one of these women who... He did have all have her, all other avenues cut off from her, mm. uh, and so she threw all of her heart and soul into teaching and went too far, really. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I think is interesting is that she was Scottish, um, and this is her most famous book, um, but it's her only book set in Scotland. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure, and she did live a lot of her life in in, um, in Italy. Italy. Yes, so. I've just uh, I've just looked up my review, by the way, and uh, the, oh, right. the, the teachers are singing an art master. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? Well, I'm glad we realised before the episode ended. Otherwise, yeah. people would be like, "What's wrong with you guys?" <laughs> like, I mean, wouldn't that have been a great reason for picking the first half of the episode? Wouldn't it? Just <laughs> we're not that good. <laughs> The thing is, we are that good because it's all like knowledge that we didn't even realise we. <laughs> yes, that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> we I... are the creme de creme. So yeah, I, I actually neither of these are my favourite Spark novels, um, oh. much though I love them. Um, and I think a lot of uh, the re- ones I, the reason I love the ones that I love most might just be when I read them, but. Um, my favourite two are Loitering with Intent um, and Memento Mori, I think. Although well, the driver's seat is also very good. That was the one where I, where I 
really started loving Spag after reading that one. But um, Loitering with Intent is set in... Uh, it's, it's quite similar in some ways to Far Cry from Kensington. It's, it's a woman who um, is a secretary to an autobiography club or something like that, and she starts just making up their memoirs because she thinks um, what they've written is boring and, and turns out that somehow she's right about them. Uh-huh. So um, it's all very interesting. But it's just very quirky and enjoyably written. Whereas Memento Mori is... Um, some uh, this group of people mostly old there was perhaps an old people home and then there's other other people as well who are all getting calls um where the person just says remember you must die and that's all they get and trying to work out who's calling them and why sounds very interesting they're both really really good um in fact the only problem about the one about joe i also really love but um She's she's really good. Man comes up with all these amazing ideas. There's a few that I've liked less. I didn't love the takeover, and um, there's some others. And there's quite a few that I've not read yet because she wrote so many. But um, but she's so inventive in her topics as well as in her writing style that you, know, you start on particularly if you don't know what it's about in advance, you just think, oh gosh, what's going on here? Well, I've got to I've got to read more widely. I mean, I'm very energy. impressed. Um, so you already loved. Uh, Miss Brody, and you loved Far Cry Princeton, but in the Teal Books decision, which one are you going to choose? Gosh, Simon, um, I probably would stick with Miss Jean Brody because I just yeah, there's something in it that I find, you know, I can't, I can't, kind of, I could read it again and again and again and find something different in it, and I can't imagine myself doing that with a Far Cry from Kensington. So. Good reason. I think I'm going to agree with you. Actually, I I really love both of them, but I think there's the the character of Miss Jean Brodie is so brilliant, and I think possibly rightfully her most famous novel, even if it's not necessarily my favourite, I think it is just one of a kind in that way. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, it really is. And brilliantly um, played by by Maggie Smith in the film, if you ever saw that. Do you know what? I haven't, and I very much want to. In fact, my, my copy is the um, film tie-in. Oh, <laughs> uh, I used to have that front. copy, but I have a, a newer edition now. All right, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> um, although Mira Spark herself, I believe, preferred Geraldine McEwen's portrayal in a TV adaptation around the same time. So, oh, well, there we are. Right Max Smith also in Memento Mori, in fact. Uh, oh. <laughs> yes, it g- gave Maggie Smith a, a chance to practice her um, McGonagall before she did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she perfected her Scottish accent, for sure. <laughs> Ah, well, I'm really pleased that you enjoyed um, the, uh, Far Cry from Kensington. Well, thanks um, for encouraging me to read yeah, it. It was, it was good fun. Yeah. Um, that's it for this year. We've really enjoyed doing it this year. I think we might be doing novels by R.C. Sheriff in the year, but that's yet to be confirmed. Yes. So we'll see. We'll see. You've read two, two or three already, haven't you? Yeah, you need to get on it. And I've read none at all, but maybe I'll take them home for Christmas and um, do that. Yes. Right. Well, have a lovely Christmas, everybody, and, and yeah. a happy new year, and we will see you in 2017. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> bye. Bye, bye.